Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, drinking habits, computational gastronomy, radical gardening, and flying pineapples. Hi, Joshna. Hi, Mirella. How's it going? It's going well, thanks. I'm yeah. enjoying the spring. How are you? I also am enjoying the spring. I saw ramps are showing up, and that to me is like the sign that things are that things are going to grow again, right? Which is very comforting and reassuring. Uh, I love that. Uh, and ramp pestos is one of the things that I love the most. So that the fact that that's happening is really really exciting. Yes, I got, it makes me think maybe it's time to transplant the pots into the garden. It might be. It might be. Okay. Um, I, th- I know everybody was hoping last weekend, but then the polar vortex did some things. Um, but yes, uh, I'm hearing that, that the ground is ready and that maybe now is the time for the move. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit today about drinking. Uh-huh. Shocker. Um, yes. <laughs> and I was curious, in your gut feeling... Do you feel, do you think people are drinking more or less? Or do you think they have been drinking more or less in this time of isolation that we've been going through than they do normally? My gut instinct on this is that consumption has increased. Right. And that people are drinking more. When I talk to my people and I hear, uh, there's lots of like, it's 11 o'clock somewhere. And there's a lot, you know, there's lots of that beer for breakfast kind of conversations. So that is leading me to think um, that everybody is drinking more than they than they than they did in a pre-pandemic time, right? Yeah, not only that, but um, you might have come across articles. There's a lot of articles saying that sales, alcohol sales, yes, have increased. Sure. Um, some of these articles are, you know, sharing frightening headlines about, you know, does this mean we're problem drinking now, or that we're gonna right, going to be leading into some health issues, addiction, right? Right. right. Uh, and anecdotally, I've had the same experience as you. A lot of my yep. friends are talking about uh, consuming day more drinking, and yeah. day drinking and getting into, you know, cocktails at home and that sort of thing. Uh, the truth of the matter is, though, the statistics that I have found all mm-hmm. point to people on the whole drinking less. Yeah, right. And there's, I think, two factors involved here, okay. uh, apart from what we've just discuss the fact that the media is bombarding us with this idea yeah um but i think people are generally drinking more at home and they're noticing that they're drinking more at home but they might not be factoring all the drinks that they're not having out yes when they think about that balance right it's just because they're they're pouring and dealing with the empties and stuff in a way that they haven't necessarily okay and similarly all of these alcohol sales statistics we're seeing are from stores like from the LCBO that sort of right. thing they're not coming from uh, what they call uh, on premise so they're not taking into account pub sales restaurant sales oh, right. hotel sales oh. which are of course oh, so those are very skewed numbers down. those are okay they are because I'm sure those are plummeted those are plummeted sales at this point well, right? they're, yeah they're not ex- well they were non-existent and now they can do a little bit of nothing, off sales right. But um, so I found some statistics for the UK. This wonderful British beer writer, Pete Brown, put some up on his blog post and the BA in the US put up some statistics for the 
uh, for the US. Uh, and as with our episode two weeks ago, when we were talking about most Google foods, I was yes. absolutely unable to find why does Canada not compile statistics? I, I, we want to know the same question, right? I, this is we are done with folding ourselves into the American data or you know, whatever nonsense thing we yeah. used to do. I have the same question. I don't know why we are not holding our own numbers about stuff like this. Anyway, so the, here are the UK statistics. 20% uh, of people report that they're drinking more. So that's, okay. uh, that's our friends. <laughs> yes, yes. 30% <laughs> are drinking less or have stopped drinking entirely. Right. And then the balance are report that they're drinking about the same. About the same. So if 20% are drinking more and 30% are drinking less, on the whole, yeah, people are drinking not... less. Yes. And in the U.S., we're seeing a similar numbers. 20% are saying they're drinking more and 25% are drinking less. Oh, those are the same. Oh, wow. So on average, people are drinking less. Right. It's surprising. And so this is like there's, there's, it's been a, there's this sort of a fictitious problem, right? What? They're sort of made the, up. The media is cooking up a fictitious <laughs> problem, Josh? No. What? What are you talking about? What exactly? Uh <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the lines that I loved a lot uh, from a piece that I read here uh, is that problem drinking is not a drink problem. It's a mental health problem. Yes. Right? The, the problem here is the unfair correlation between the excess of this, like a perceived excess of the stuff uh, and your and your potentially like abusive, harmful use of the thing. Right. There, there's a, yeah. a real leap of assumption has been made, I think. And that was Pete Brown's blog post the, yeah. that UK writer I was talking about. And I think it is important to acknowledge that there has been a rise in problem drinking. Yes. During this time of isolation. Yep. A, you know, people are reporting it. It's very real. But yep. like you said, it's not linked to how much people are purchasing. This, it's not like lots of booze around then generates addicts. It's more yeah. linked to, you know, the very real fact that this, these are times that where we're scared and yes. we're anxious yeah. uh, and you know very much like people are turning to comfort foods you know That's people it. are leaning on you know whatever it is that they usually lean on right when well, they're listen. when they're having problems yeah. at similarly i loved in that piece the talk about the 240 percent spike in jigsaw puzzle sales <laughs> was amazing <laughs> right 240 right. and i saw a stat somewhere that said the ontario cannabis store has seen like a 300 and something spike right, right in sales during the pandemic so i was like this is this is this is what's happening right this is where we are right now mm -hmm. it's uh yeah so i this is absolutely not to to make light of the the situation the real struggle and, sure and uh you know i I, I did love what you were talking about, what Pete Brown mentioned in the article about it being more a mental health issue yeah. than, a, than a drinking, a consumption issue. And the other thing he pointed out that I hadn't really thought about, but it, it's, I think it's important to share, is that uh, general population data shows that the more affluent you are, the more you drink. Mm -hmm. But the less affluent you are, the more likely you are to suffer alcohol-related harm. Right. And I, again, saw a parallel with, you know, what you're always talking about with food and with food for sure and food literacy and yep. um, just that imbalance there to, uh, in terms of access to uh, healthy yes. food and, and the and disproportionately negative impact 
of things on people who are financially, you know, viable or people of color, you know, what gender stuff, however it is. Yeah. Uh, the fact that it, it hits harder uh, on uh, on lower income folks. For sure. But, you know, all this to say to those who, you know, have been cracking open a beer at 11 a.m. because they yeah. can or, you know, having a few extra cocktails at home. It, it's fine. You're not developing yes. a problem. Well, and listen, in times and, that are so full of things for us to be worried about, yeah. maybe we can ease up about a panic about the collective alcoholism that everybody is assuming is coming our way. Right. right? Let's let's let that one roll away. We have enough to, to worry about. Let's let a, like a not real thing float off into the distance. I just want to take a moment to remind our listeners that in these podcasts, we refer to our various articles and blog posts. And if ever you're interested in learning more, we provide links to those articles oh, in so our nice. show notes and in on the website. So there's Wonderful. always uh, the possibility to... These. Do a deep dive of your own. Nice. Thank you. So, Josh, now, I'm sure you've heard of molecular gastronomy. Yes, I have. But, but have you heard of computational gastronomy? No. Tell me what? more. What? Tell me more. This actually came to my attention a few years ago, but the idea is to examine food ingredients on a molecular level. Okay. Uh, and based on molecules, figure out which other ingredients would also work well with those ingredients, just based entirely on the molecular structure. Right. And the reason it's come to my attention is because the people who are doing these pairings are also interested to see, you know, can we do beer and food pairings okay. Okay. based on this, you know, molecular breakdown, uh, which is, you know, the opposite of the work I do, right? Which is pairing well, right. based That's on exactly, you're talking my about sensory palate. information, right. <laughs> But it does yield some really unusual and intriguing combos. I went to, there's, uh, some of this work is found on a website called foodpairing.com. Okay. And, and here are some intriguing combinations. I don't know if you've okay. experienced any of these. Let's have it. Beef and white chocolate. Yes. Strawberry. Very good. Yeah. Yes. Strawberry yes. and Parmesan. Ooh, no. Cherry and basil. Yes. Chocolate and onions. What? Chocolate and onions. In this case, it was a chocolate mousse and some caramelized onions. I don't yeah, know. I wonder. Intriguing, if the, right? The, like the sweetie, sweet umami-ish of the onion, because once it's caramelized, they're all sort of lazy and their their sharpness is out. Mm. That is good, right? And so, okay, so I I want you to help me really understand what we're talking about. The suggestion is by I by sort of looking at the molecular structure, the, the, the assumption or the understanding is that foods with similar molecular structures will, will, will also have flavors that go well. To, like foods, the flavors will work. It's foods with similar molecules. Similar so, molecules. Yeah. So okay. these two foods have like eight molecules in common. Right. Of the total versus the three percentage. molecules in Got common. It. So it's not about how the molecules are arranged. It's about the individual the molecules. molecules okay. And having the same identical molecules in the two okay. different foods. So the article that I shared with you, Joshna, was about one specific person doing this yes. work, Dr. Ganesh Bagler, who's based in yep. New Delhi and is a 
computational gastronomy expert. Don't you love his one dude in the world with that title? I love that. And he was inspired by a chef from the UK who came yes, up with this food pairing. Sure. Uh, yeah. This food pairing hypothesis that foods that share flavor molecules will taste better together than those that do not. And I was really curious to hear your take on this because obviously, you know, my first reaction is a a little bit of not feeling right because this, you know, is basically replacing me with a machine. (laughs) Yes, yes. but, you know, this is really about food. So it is. And there was there's so much of it that I find really, really cool. Uh, and interesting because the approach to food and flavor is what is so what I think a bit innovative and fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the fact that it is an Indian dude. Right. And the fact that there therefore is this inclusion mm-hmm. of the the sort of the all the range of flavor in the Indian kitchen and really what that means, because I find in a lot of conversations that I have about flavor, they're still really Euro anchored. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's not enough of a sense of of a kitchen like the Indian kitchen that has a mashup of so many mega flavors. Mm -hmm. But what I thought, I mean, obviously as an Indian person myself, uh, I was like, tell me, tell me what I like this conversation about what makes Indian food Indian. Yes. Right. I was really into this. Right. And his one conclusion that he came up with was that the value of Indian food lies in the spices. Right. The, The line was spices are the molecular fulcrum of Indian food. And that really resonated with me so you know uh-huh. he, he might be using a different technique but he's, right. he's landing in the right place because you know what he was saying in terms of the the spices is that they're what really makes the dish flavorful and from there like you could swap out you know, lentils for chicken be, or whatever right. the, uh, any the veg, core ingredient anything. is yeah. and it'll still remain the same dish and that really resonated with me because I say this in food pairing all the time hmm. uh, with pairing beer with food we've inherited the problems from wine which is you know chicken and fish with white wine uh, and you know I see meat with red those wine, same funny little rules okay which is does not take into account preparation at all right it's like what is on that fish what is on that chicken so when i teach food pairing i always encourage people to think about what is the dominant flavor in that dish and i think it's fair to say in indian food that the spices are clearly right the dominant flavor so it it was interesting to me that he landed you know in the same place that i've landed using my palette using his computer even though it's a little creepy I think it's really interesting um, because the question that that came to me is that he he says there that they are successfully quantifying the knowledge that until now was only intuitively available to a cook. Mm -hmm. I am interested in the notion that cooks in their intuition have a sense of of pairing molecular identities. Right. Not and not knowing that that's what they're doing. But that some, you know, that it, our, our passion for flavor or dynamic experience in the mouth somehow parallels that thinking is what I find super fascinating. It is. Yeah, right? it this, is very interesting. And I certainly, whenever I come across a menu with an odd combination, something I'm not ex- yeah. expecting, I always order that because I, yes. I know that it's that chef who through whatever process zeroed they in on these two precisely. random things. I don't know why, but they're really good together. Yeah. And that's something I want to experience. And so on that on that note, I guess, yeah, it's what he's doing is explaining why those two random things. 
right. work well together and maybe opening it's, the door for more of that delightful randomness. I think so. Uh, and and there was a there's sort of some forecasting a bit of doom about whether a machine would would could potentially take over, you know, yeah. from a human and a chef. And I I don't think that that is a real worry at all. Not to diminish the machines, mm-hmm. but I think I don't think the machine like just go for it. Let's see what we can so learn you, here. So right? You see this, this is as fascinating. A tool, as an additional 100%. tool that you can use. Yeah. I'd be so fascinated uh, because I'm a flavor chaser, mm-hmm. right? I, and so if you can tell me different things to put together to maximize this, the magic in the mouth, I, I love that. Nice. Without having to do all that trial and error myself. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you'll be happy to know that he's launching a website soon called Recipe DB. And so a lot of his work is apparently publicly available. You just have to look around for it, which is cool. So uh, previously we talked a little bit about the boost in seed sales during this pandemic time and people sort of forecasting uh, what food, potential food shortages or just considering their own food security, let's say. Yes. Right. Um, And so I found this story uh, where there's this awesome dude named Ron Finley um, who is positioning gardening in a city as activism. Yes. And I like the way... Uh, he says, well, this is more than just securing a food source. He talks about cultivating ourselves and we're learning how to take care of things and learning that nothing is instantaneous. Uh, so essentially, this guy is is planting food gardens in sort of unlikely places in an urban context. Right. Old sort of front yards or backyards or all sorts of different things. Um, but there's. There's something interesting about the way he talks about it, right? He himself is a black American man uh, living in a dense uh, urban context. And he, what was fascinating about the way he talks about it is that the his focus is the planting, mm-hmm. right? It's like the food is a sort of lovely byproduct, uh, but his activism is about it, that there's, there's a sense of protest in the planting, Right. And that I love this idea about claiming land and taking up space and reworking your own food security, essentially, is what he's doing. Uh, I really I loved it. I love this. Yeah. Is, these are voices I think need to be cultivated a little bit more because it, the the positioning of gardening as both therapeutic and defiant or even just considering defiance in gardening is Listen, the activist inside of me is delighted with this conversation. For sure. How yeah. did it land I loved, with you? I loved his parallel to graffiti. Yes. And the idea that these people are, you know, taking a wall or whatever and making it more beautiful. And in the same way, when he planted his first garden, which he planted on that, you know, that little strip that lies beside the sidewalk, which technically belongs to the city. To the but, city, that's uh, it. It's, it's the same thing here in Toronto, that, that front strip yep. of any property belongs to the city. Between but it's the up sidewalk to us, and the curb, right. But it's up to us to maintain it. Right. And so he thought, you know, the, uh, obviously I can plant here. And yeah. of course the city came down on him and yeah. he had to fight. So it definitely, you know, was a, a defiant act for him yeah. to plant that first garden. And I was, I have to say, really shocked. He describes very vividly the area he's been living in. Mm-hmm. And it is a dense urban area, but he described it as a food desert. Uh, yeah. And well, this he is said in food prison. 
it's in a it's a grim area of LA and he it just two things he said really shocked me once the first thing was uh because he's we he's just great at painting a picture yeah uh the the drive-throughs are killing more people than the drive-bys oh yes what a super impactful oh my goodness yes and the other thing that really shook me was that he in his area he sees dialysis centers popping up like Starbucks. Mm. Oh man, that's a really grim bit of evidence on the state of the food system, right? And just the idea that where he's living to access healthy food, or in his mind, healthy food, he was mm-hmm. looking for organic food, mm-hmm. which is you know one conception yep. of uh, healthy food, was a forty-five minute drive for him. Yeah. So, of course, it makes sense to plant your own garden this in that it. context. And yeah. how ridiculous that the city even tried to clamp down uh, I, well, this, and prevent and exactly, him from doing it. Right? It raises so many questions about what freedom we have to control our food security. Yeah. Right? You, all, the only reason you're growing food is so that you can actually stay alive. Right? And <laughs> yeah. It's really, I just love the many aspects of it. You know, the fact that he said, because I guess there's some people in his area that are food insecure. Yes. And they'll come and and pick food furtively in the night and he'll go and meet up with them and say, no, you're you're welcome to the food. I know, right? That's why it's out front. Oh, he's that generous. Yet the uh, the instinct is still to steal away in the night and take some of this, right? It's just lets, lets us know what our relationship with food is really like at this moment. Right. And I just I love his perspective, you know, that there's no shame in it because it's a result of this larger planning. Right. Yes. Like but that's bad urban planning. That's it. If the only food you have access to is fast food. Yep. And in that climate, there is absolutely no shame. Not in at wanting all. a strawberry, you yeah. know, or uh, yeah, or some know, crisp fresh... lettuce or something. Yes. Right. Some a nice apple. It, um, it really it's... reminded me of a lot of the things you say about, you know, having a right to food. Yeah, uh, and... it's the, um, the something that really resonated with me when I read this was a was a lesson I heard from a woman named Natisha who runs Black Creek Community Farm here in Toronto. Yes. Right. And they're deep urban farmers, um, but with a real focus on racialized populations. Mm-hmm. Right. And the thing that she said that I didn't register with is that herb, the notion of urban agriculture is essential because people of color who want to farm still, unfortunately, have real problems uh, actually accessing farmland. Right. Both not the money to do it. And two, there's still a lot of racism that stands in the way of them actually purchasing land out in the country somewhere. Right. Right. So the idea of the 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 notion of investing in urban agriculture uh, is even more important for people, again, disproportionately impacted by things like the food system and poverty and, you know, all these other bits. And yeah, their environment in this case, right? And I loved uh, another thing that he said. I mean, he's really making change at a grassroots level. He really is. He said people who, uh, no, he's talking about children specifically. So children who plant kale eat kale. Yes. And children who plant tomatoes eat tomatoes. That's it. Right? As opposed to children who are surrounded by fast food shops only are going to eat fast food. So it's, uh, I think it really is a, a radical thing that he's doing. Uh, it's and, tremendous. And an important thing. And it speaks to a lot of what I've been talking about, about the fact that it's the culture of food. 
and the mm-hmm. priority that food gets. It's not just what's on the plate. Uh, and he he has really put it into a context that I think is so, it's just a voice we really need to hear. Joshna, have you ever done any VR dining? Not not at all. Tell me more. I have not experienced it either, but I came across this fascinating article. I you know, I just have to quote directly from the article mm-hmm. how they describe this virtual dining experience cuz my mind is still spinning and I don't think I can do it justice right. if I try to explain it. So this woman describes, you know, coming into this space, putting on these VR goggles and what she sees is floating objects and oversized foods appear pink pineapples blue cherries falling from the sky meat dancing through the air and colorful environments that seem to light up with each dish this was all set to music and narration and before every course a table would appear with an object representing the food the diners were about to eat for example one dish appeared as a red sphere on a plate And this cued the narrator to say, I think it tastes like the whistle that the wind makes through a locked door on a cold autumn afternoon. And while you're hearing all this, you have a plate, uh, a little bowl in front of you that has a bite and you dump it into your mouth and experience this flavor while you're seeing. This is from a from a New York uh, VR experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was the, the piece. It was at James Beard house. Right, which is is important to know because they are, you know, obviously real tether in gastronomy and the culture of it all. So the notion that they would sort of host or sponsor, you know, something like this is is really quite something. Right. Right? When they're all there, it's it's a big deal for them uh, to do something like this. And I I'm happy for the the chance to rethink it because as I was reading, I was like, okay, so you're wearing goggles and eating or drinking at the same time. Mm hmm. Right. And so my first thought was like, it's sort of like a tasting menu with an AV component. Yeah, I think that would be fair to say, except you're detached from everyone because you're wearing these little goggles. It's it's an isolated tasting menu experience with an AV, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So the thing that I thought was super interesting about this was when they talked about TV dinners of the 1950s, right? And that the idea of us consuming our food in front of a screen... Mm-hmm. Right. With that was sort of a, you know, a big sort of advance. Um, but the difference between that and what's happening here is that the food we were eating had nothing to do with what was on the screen. Right. Right. And now yeah. the suggestion is that this that this experience somehow combines what you're seeing and what you're eating. And look, from a person who likes to sort of delight and tantalize people, that sounds like it might be something. But, but I, I, I don't, I don't know. I'd love to know more. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Well, no, I, my head is just spinning because, yeah. you know, these people who went through these experiences that they interviewed in the article said that it did augment their appreciation of the food and they noticed right. different aspects of the food. And my first thought is, well, maybe you should just put your phone down, you know? Is it like, just attention? Is it like, just that you, you're paying do attention? Do you need right. to be, you know, bombarded with flying pink yes. pineapples and th- to focus in on your food you know that's the difference yeah you know to, i don't to me this is not very different from sitting in front of the tv and and watching it doesn't seem food. like it right it does bring your attention back to the food but 
yeah, there. I don't know if you got to this part of the article, but they're talking about how this VR technology has major social benefits for people who are eating alone. And I'm not I don't, sure. Uh, yeah, I don't. How, get how it. is this different from eating it. in front of the TV? Like, yeah, or or eating in front of watching somebody else eat, which is another weird thing that we do, right? We'll log on to watch right, other people. And I got eat. confused when they were talking about the social benefits of this for people who eat alone and who are in isolation. I don't see how this I, I don't, connects I don't, people more. Me neither. Now, I in my I was a bit disappointed. I will uh-huh. say to hear that the visuals was just about like dancing pineapples. <laughs> right because i'm like what's the point of that i want you to give me a vr experience that will let me sit in piazza navona yeah with a with a and then you give me a delicious plate of pasta or or by the seaside yeah exactly right and then i have the calamari that like that to me to be able to transport me somewhere like that um that would uh, that I'm into, right? So that those, feels like it makes sense. Yeah, those are some VR applications. So they've been used to uh, to sell food and much in the way that yeah. you're describing to take people through tours of, you know, crops in foreign countries. So, for example, yes. coffee fields in Brazil. It's been used to teach cooking, um, but it's also used to trick taste buds. And this application, uh, again, touches on mm. our favorite thing, which is uh, tricking people into eating meat thinking they're eating meat when they're actually yes, eating something yes, else so that course. we're not uh, consuming yes. too much meat on and on and on with the meat solutions. Uh, on and, on. And, <laughs> and I did note, actually I did note that they just super casually were like, Oh, and there's also another thing to trick people into thinking they're eating meat so that there's a sustainability component. Right. And uh, I was like, well, that was a uh, very quick sweep of a lot of things <laughs> there, friend. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think in the, you know, with the right application, this could be a really fun thing to do as an adventure. And it is a treat. I think many of these experiences are hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. Yes, so it's something you do like it, yes. once or twice in a lifetime. Uh, one thing that I found interesting yeah. in the article, because they were talking about, you know, where is this going to go? What are they going to do with right. VR? Is they're saying that probably a lot of the growth is going to come from big companies in sectors where they can't just compete on taste. So things like ice cream, tea, yeah. coffee, beer. So it looks like it's going to take the place of advertising. Right. Now that, okay. you know, we're all, everyone's on Netflix and whatnot and not, not being exposed to so many ads. Mm-hmm. These companies that have always relied on, you know, on building yeah. a feeling around a product are now instead building an experience around the right. product. And I'm hearing a lot. I don't know about you, Josh. Now I'm guessing in the food world, it's the same. Like yeah. everyone wants an experience. They don't I, want I, to just yeah. eat. They want an experience. So this is... I mean, I get it, that. but I will I will tell you that when I hear that, it makes me roll my eyes. Let's just bring back great hospitality instead. That's an experience. Right? Because great hospitality right. <laughs> is also, the point of it is the experience of the dining, right? Yes. This is just something we're plugging the hole with because we have really deprioritized hospitality. So we want to prop it back up again. I, I really, that's what I really, that's what I smell here. If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us at patreon.com slash hotplatepod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at hotplatepod. Follow me at Beerology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
Original music by Dave Bell. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Thanks for listening.